Please send the next patient in. Come in. Hello there. Oh, hi, Doctor. Oh, hello. You're the uh, seven-times F1 world champion Lewis Hamilton, aren't you? Uh, yes, Doctor. Please sit down. Uh, I'd rather uh, stand, if that's okay. Of course, that's just fine. What seems to be the problem? Well, um, it's my backside. Okay, well, pop off your trousers, bend over, and I'll take a look. Oh, gosh, that does look rather sore. Does it hurt if I do this? Ow! Oh, yes, 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 I can see that is really rather nasty, isn't it? Uh, you can pull your trousers back up now. So, uh, doctor, can you help me? Of course, I can give you some pills and some cream to apply. And uh, what exactly is this condition called, doctor? Well, the correct medical term is rubrum annulum de armentitis. Oh, gosh, that's quite a name. Yes, but there's also a, a common term. You're suffering from a severe bout of what's generally known as Red Bull Ring. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. He's Alex Goy. Hi. He's Zog. Hello. And no Sarah this week, because Sarah's had a rubbish week. She had a laptop stolen, and she's got to deliver all kinds of important data that was on a laptop. So we've given Sarah the day off to recover. Poor soul. Actually, I realise I've made a terrible mistake recording this programme right now, Zog, Alex. Yeah, because fun. as we record this, you know, round about six o'clock-ish, on a Sunday evening, the day of the Austrian Grand Prix, July the 4th, happy America Day. Right now, the IndyCar race at Mid-Ohio is on. Right now, and I should be watching it, not recording this programme. I love IndyCar. Sorry, I made a mistake there, scheduling this. Have you got it recording? Have you, uh, do you I am it? recording it. Uh, and I, okay. I will okay. be able to watch it posthumously, is that the right term? Only if the entire race and the idea of IndyCar dies. Yep. <laughs> Come close every now and again. <laughs> or as it is you know hint hint everyone my 60th birthday tomorrow the 5th of july i never expected to live to be 60 so it could be actually me that dies on my 60th birthday and i may never get to see it so i'll have to watch it tonight instead of editing the program yeah well let's put a positive spin on the uh, on the run <laughs> yeah. to your birthday try that's, not that's, to die that's mate. the spirit yeah <laughs> I'm going to do my best not to die. Yeah. Looking forward to birthday. Really hope you don't die before we get there. I'm just genuinely surprised I've lived this long. That's how I feel. The idea that this is my last day of being in my 50s is an absurd idea. I hope you agree. Yes, you don't look a day over 12. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, that's what I was fishing for. Now we can talk about cars. Thank you, Alex. You can come to this programme again. Excellent. All right. It's actually... A very exciting week for cars, particularly if you're a Lotus fan, which I know all three of us are here mm. at about the same sort of level. I mean, I really do rate Lotus as one of my favourite car brands right up there with Lancia, Ford and, dare I say it, Hyundai. I know, bear with me on that. But I was invited to the launch of an exciting new Lotus 
on July the 6th, and much to my chagrin, I had to turn it down because I know on July the 6th, I'm going to be massively hung over because of my birthday celebrations the day before. And there's no way in the universe that I'm going to go and find out about this car. But luckily, Alex, you know quite a lot about it already. How come? I know all the things because I am the master of all that is cars. That is true. I've been writing about it for people and I had to sign my life away. So, well, technically talking about it now, no one knows about it. By the time this goes out, everyone does know about it. And Matt Windle, Lotus's new man at the top, won't send around a bunch of trained geese to beat me to death. For spilling, <laughs> spilling the info. Uh, yeah, hey, so hang the on, Lotus- just a moment. I need to go back. Trained geese, is that what they do in Norfolk? They have trained geese as a, so like a mafia hit squad. Well, you know, if you break a McLaren embargo, they send round the swans from the lake outside of the MTC. Okay. And when I was up at Hethel, I saw a goose last time. So I'm assuming there's an army of them. Makes perfect sense. Ready and waiting. Geese can be pretty aggressive, pretty tough. Don't mess with a can goose. Break a man's arm. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a whole yeah. video game called Untitled Goose Game. It's great. It has a honk button. <laughs> really? Yeah. As I'm sure the new Lotus does as well. Yes, it does. Anyway, yeah, cars. We should probably talk about cars. Go on, what's it called? It is called the Lotus Emira. Emira indeed. I have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Emira. It means leader or something like that. E-M-I-R-A. There was a girl in my early 20s called Emira who I fancied a lot. So this is bringing back very good oh. memories. She was ace. Loved Emira. Anyway, yes, the new Lotus Emira. What would you like to know about it first? Power, price, look, feel? Okay, my first question is actually none of those. Uh-huh. My first question is, was it designed by lovely Russell Carr? It was indeed designed by the Lotus Design Director and his team, yep. Russell Carr. I am reassured by that because I think he's a real talent and also a really top bloke. And I was slightly concerned as there's been so much investment into Lotus and so much change recently that he might just have got sidelined. But I'm very pleased that he didn't. No, he did not. Russell Carr's previous masterwork was the Avaya, the electric hypercar, 2,000 horsepower, 2 million quid. All the carbon fibre, big holes running through it. And I assume by now everyone would have seen some pictures but Emira kind of looks like a smaller version of that. Yeah. Which is just really good news. So it's got those big boomerang vents on the nose. The leading edge of it's very tight, very pointy to aid aerodynamics. It's got sort of a version of the big holes through the doors. Yeah. On the Emira, they guide air into the engine bay and then the holes in the back vent hot air out of the car and aid downforce and pressure relief and things like that it's a very 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 pretty car the most interesting thing so i interviewed russell carr about it and gavan kershaw yep. the uh, what's his title it's head of vehicle dynamics and development or something it's head of attributes and product integrity that's what it is oh wow and the big step change the thing that both of them were mentioning was that the interior is so much better than before because previously if you've been in an elise for example you didn't have a glove box you had a shelf a cup holder is a thing of mystery to the people at Lotus. While you could spec one, it was good for like a little bottle of Evian, not a big Starbucks. There was lots of kind of body colour stuff because it was just the body. There was no covering. Soft touch plastic was some sort of swear word. I mean, the Evora kind of did build on that. Evora, indeed. Sorry, I'm obliged to do that every time. I'm really sorry. It's a contractual thing. But so I spent a bit of time with the car. Oh, Lord, it must have been a month ago now mm-hmm. up at a studio 
in Linkton Buzzard and had a good prod and a poke around it. The interior, admittedly, it was a show car I was playing with, so I don't know how any of it actually works, but it looks and it feels really smart. Like, there are soft-touch plastics, there's leather, there's a starter button that lives under a big red flip cover thing, so you've got a bit of drama when you press it. There are screens rather than dials. There are still physical controls, of course, but there are screens that control stuff. They've actually done away with analogue dials altogether. For the instrument binnacle, yeah, it's on a 12.3-inch TFT display. Crikey. Because it can change depending on your driving mode. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. It'll do, like, lap time tracking and stuff like that and all the racy stuff. I think the lap time tracking is only if you spec the sport suspension pack, because sport suspension gets you stickier tyres, stiffer springs, and, 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 and a sort of race mode. Yep. Or you can have a tour mode, which gives you softer springs... Same amount of power, etc., etc. But no, the interior, it's really plush. Like, they did away with analogue dials on the Elise and Exige final editions. I haven't driven the final edition of Aurea. Did they? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I've driven both Elise 240 final edition, Sport 240, and Exige Sport 380 final edition. And you have a little TFT display that does the numbers. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it from a Lotus point of view, while it adds complexity for cooling, it's a lot simpler. One screen requires fewer bits and less stuff to go wrong than lots of little dialy things. Yep. And so from a future development point of view, basically you've just got to rewrite code yeah. for these different versions rather than maybe having to do anything physical. Yeah, I mean, that's an extrapolation, but it makes sense also for a modern sports car when you consider it's going up against stuff like, I don't know, Caymans, which has all digital all the time and is super shiny. Like, that kind of stuff is important, especially in that market. But... Getting ahead of myself. Would you like to hear about the engines? There are engines. I was going to ask, but yeah, what are the engine options? Can I ask a question about the engines before we find the details? Yeah. Whose engines are they? Because they're not going to be Toyota blocks anymore. Does this mean that this is a Volvo slash Geely block? No. No. So it has, there are two engines on offer and three gearboxes, the combinations of which haven't been revealed just yet, but some common sense thinking will make that make sense. So the first engine is a 3.5-litre supercharged V6. Wonder where that's from. So it's the one we know and love. And the second, and this is the exciting bit, is a 2-litre AMG-sourced four-cylinder turbo. What? Ooh. Yeah. Lotus AMG, I like it. I didn't see that coming, but now it all makes sense because who are the... Is it 20% shareholders in Daimler or Mercedes-Benz? Mm-hmm. It's Geely, who own Lotus yeah. and Volvo, Volvo and, and the London Electric Vehicle Company and Polestar. I never saw that coming. Neither did I. Obviously, I haven't driven it, haven't heard it, haven't seen it running. And the car I saw didn't have a gear stick in it, and they didn't tell me which engine was allegedly in the show car, because it's a show car, so it doesn't really have anything in it, apart from lots of very expensive custom-moulded bits. Power will range from, off the top of my head, 360 to 400 horsepower, yeah. depending on spec. 0 to 62 takes less than 4.5 seconds. And, yeah. again, depending on spec, top speed is 180 miles an hour. Boy. Are both these engines going to be available from launch? That I don't know. Okay. And do we have an idea about price for these? Yes. Oh, boys, this is the really exciting bit, right? So how much would you expect a brand new mid-engined Lotus sports car with all the tech you could want? Not too much tech, but all the tech you could want. How much would you expect that to go for? Lotuses have been severely expensive compared to comparative Porsches, haven't they? You could get a Boxster for around 59 
grand and the equivalent Lotus was more like 79 grand. So I'm guessing the way that you're selling this to us is that it's <laughs> cheaper than Lotuses have been. I'm going to say 68 grand. Zog, what's your... Uh, okay, my recent price guessing has been quite poor, so I'm going to hope I can uh, up my game a little bit. You're saying 68, Gareth. I'm saying 68. Okay, I'm going to go for a nice round number here. 50. Well... Probably too low, but hey, there we go. One of you is righter than the other, but I can't tell how much by, because the only details they've given is that it's sub 60 grand. Why? So again, again, I imagine that'll be spec dependent. I'm sure the sky's the limit if you go for one with XYZ on it, and all that will be revealed a little bit further down the line, but sub 60 grand. We don't very often see manufacturers, particularly manufacturers whose brand has a bit of, you know, something special associated with them. We don't often come out with a new model that kind of really comes in under the price you'd expect. Yeah. Prices tend to balloon in all kinds of ways. Yeah. So that is really great news. No, that's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear they're making this cheaper, more available to people. I reckon the way in which they're achieving this is economies of scale. It's the only way they can do this. Now, the idea of the Emira, as I understand it, is to replace both the Evora, the Elise, and the Exige with one car for now, until the new tiny, lightweight, super little Lotus turns up in about two years, I think. They're making an even smaller one, aren't they? And so they expect to sell enough of the new Emira more than those three previous models and it's sold commonality so that's brought the price down perhaps from conversations with people along the way you know they are looking to sell more of these something gav kershaw said to me they look like the volume proposition is going to be larger because it's less of a niche product now i mean if you look at what they're offering it has usable luggage space behind the seats it's got proper sat nav it's got car play they want a more refined thing so all of a sudden it's not a well do i get the hardcore exige or do i get a cayman it's a hang on an emira will do just as i can get a sporty emira which will do kind of cayman gc4 stuff that's me just thinking out loud not what they've told me yeah, yeah. plus also the platform is lotus new sports car architecture which is being built at a new facility down the road close to norwich and it uses the same bonded, extruded aluminium chassis tech that Evora and Elise and Exige use. So they know how to do it. They know how to get the bits. And plus with suppliers with greater this and greater that, I think a lot of favours have been called in via Geely going, well, we want this. Fine. Geely will just swing its massive money member <laughs> and, and, and make stuff happen. And might there be a quid pro quo here in that that same platform that Lotus has developed for this car might then turn up in some other areas of the Geely empire, maybe? I have no idea. It would be pretty cool if there was a Polestar on that platform or on, yeah, exactly. on something similar to it, but... It would be a relatively small volume model, I'm sure, for whichever of those other companies were, were doing it. Yeah. But it would be interesting. It would be pretty cool. I think of the other Geely brands... Possibly the only one that could make use of that platform would be Polestar. And you're right, yeah. so the idea of a Polestar sports car is intriguing because the Polestar brand is making headway in America now, isn't it? Lotus has always struggled in America. It's never quite got there. And I wonder if this is the car to help Lotus break America. Well, so I think that the problem Lotus has, because they're trying to sell an Evora out there at the moment, the Evora GT, and it's something yep. like $120,000 or something yeah, like that. Or, yeah, yeah. Like, it's Porsche money 
plus. Yeah. Whereas the American price I was given for this was around 80,000. Much more like well, it, isn't it? Right. It's also mm. interesting, actually, that at the same time we've been talking about this surprisingly low price, you were also describing a rather more kind of luxurious interior mm. than we're used to from Lotus, which I guess is generally a good thing. But what Lotus means to me and what draws me to Lotus is a lot more the engineering side of it mm. and the you know dynamic purity aspect yeah. of it yeah i'm prepared to put up with a bit of you know roughness here and there and bare surfaces and raw material to the lotus yeah so it's kind of interesting that they've upped their game there at the same time as lowering the price the thing is if you're saying like you're willing to settle for a bit of roughness and a little bit of rawness in order to get it to be a lotus problem is the people who actually spend their money on our loaders don't do it that often because you buy one and you keep it forever yeah yeah which is you know it's you know it, i'm atypical sure i was having a conversation with someone about it and it's like you cannot make a sustainable business based on a handful of people a year mm-hmm. wanting a stripped out sports car to use once every now and then there's just not enough money in that mm-hmm. lotus has yeah. to go yeah. to that kind of more mainstream audience mm-hmm. the trick will be whether emira drives as well as they say it will. So Gavin Kershaw's obviously, he's spent hours and hours and hours making it go sideways around Hethel. He knows the jam. He knows what it is, what it's like. So it just depends on how it drives. Now, Gav, he's very, very, very keen enthusiastic, and he guarantees that it drives like a Lotus. The sports suspension package does sound like the one to get if you really wanted an Exige but have missed the boat. And the Tour sounds great for me because it's a bit softer and a bit squidgier, yet it'll still handle like a Lotus. I think a lot of people will get very swept up in the fact that, oh, well, how can it have sat-nav? How can it have a screen? How can it have this? How can it have that? The reality of the situation is it's much like the manual gearbox argument where people go, oh, well, there aren't enough cars with manuals anymore. There would be if the people who kept complaining about the bloody things not being there bought them in the first place. Actually bought them, yeah. Rather than moaned that a car they might buy in 10 years doesn't come with one because the person who originally put their money down for it wanted an automatic. Yeah. There's also that thing that there's a disproportionate amount of noise made by the people that want the manual gearbox. Mm. Yeah. You know, 95% of the people are happy to have whatever else they're offered and they're not too bothered about it so they don't make a noise you know the one thing that a lot of lotus people are going to pick up on which is the question i thought you were asking earlier gareth is the weight before you answer that my next question about the car leads to that answer which is i know that one of the things lotus when i went there last were keen on improving bear with me on this is access and egress to the car Hmm. that the exige and the elise and to a lesser extent but Still, even so, the Evora, you have to get over a fairly wide aluminium sill to get in, and it's not the easiest car to get in and out of. And Lotus's solution with this for the Evaya was to give it scissor doors. Mm. So my question about the Emira is, how do the doors on the Emira open? Which way do they hinge? And if they're scissor doors... Doesn't that make it heavy, or have they just gone for conventional doors? It's normal doors, I'm afraid. Ah! So with later Elise and Exige, the sill issue was not resolved, but it was fixed to an extent. Like, the sill was made narrower and lower. Mm. Because the problem with the old chassis tech was that, because they didn't have a fixed roof... The rigidity came from the pan, You had to have it stiff in the bottom. And it, it worked, but, you know... I drove an S1 Elise last year and it was like climbing over a small hill. Like it was ridiculous. And then I got in a newer one immediately afterwards and it was absolutely fine. 
once you've got down to it. But no, so this car, it was put to me. I said, so what, what about getting in and out if this is a car designed for more people? It's only marginally bigger than an Evora, yeah. size-wise. Wheels are a bit bigger and it's got a wider track, so it looks more imposing. Bear in mind, the last managing director, CEO, man at the top, Phil Popham, was six and a half foot tall. Mm. <laughs> so this car was designed so the boss could have one, Right. Tall people can have a Lotus. Yeah. Also, they can have a coffee. Yeah. Or have I said that already? Oh, new cup holder. It's got two. Well, that's a breakthrough. I'm going to pick you up on something about cup holders. I remember the most beautiful bit of design I've ever, ever, ever seen in the car was in an Elise S2, the supercharged version that we had oh, a thousand years ago, Zoggy, for something. And as I recall, the cup holder was an aluminium ring. Mm. with a leather strap, rather like a gusset, as if it was some <laughs> kind of chastity belt hanging below. And that was it. It was the yeah. most exotic piece of minimalist design ever. And if the new car, the Amira, has got a piece of plastic like you might get in a Chrysler in America, I will be really disappointed. I hate to disappoint you, no. but it's been designed properly. And I'm finding a quote from the interview I did with Russell Carr now, because... Here it is. Friend of mine bought an Evora and loved the car, but he rang me up and had a rant that there's no cup holder and said, just because I do the occasional track day doesn't mean to say I never drink coffee. Where's my cup holder? <laughs> so now there's two for him, which is an entirely valid point. So with its cup holders and sensible ingress, egress, yep. weight, it weighs in in its lightest form at 1,405 kilos, which is... Why? Decent chunk over, not big, big decent, because yeah. I think the Evora was in the latter half of 1,300 kilos. Yeah. But it is heavier. That said, in its lightest form, it is five kilos lighter than a Cayman. That's enough then, isn't it? Job done. Well, it really should be. You know, come on. Let's <laughs> I have this image of people sat around a room going, oh no, oh no, how are we going to do this? Uh, we have to make it X amount lighter than Cayman. It must be lighter than the Porsche. It has to be lighter than the Porsche. Why isn't it lighter than the Porsche? Oh, thank God it is. But yeah, again, I don't know what its lightest form actually means. They did it. Yeah. They will have added as much lightness as they could. I mean, yeah. this is a lovely moment to be discussing a new Lotus because a new Lotus is like choosing a new Pope, isn't it? It's something that only happens every 20 <laughs> years or so. And you get a new Lotus and I'm sorry I'm not going to be there for the actual launch of that car, but I'm very pleased to have heard all about it from you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jean-Marc Finot, as motorsport boss at Stellantis, you must be very proud of the design of the new Le Mans entry Peugeot 9X8. But of course, I'm like a proud parent at the birth of a child. And what a beautiful child it is too. Well, thank you very much. It is very kind of you to say that. But uh, I think the beauty in this car is... Uh, in the many innovations that our chief designer, Olivier Jansoni, has imbued in this creation. Perhaps you could shed a little light on a few of them? Well, the powertrain is all new, a 2.6-litre twin-turbo V6, and a 
200 kilowatt front axle motor generator unit. The uh, LMH regulations you see are less prescriptive than the LMP1 predecessors and instead lay down performance windows, including targets for maximum downforce and minimum drag, in which the cars must fit. Once again, I can only compliment Olivier Jansoni, our technical director, on doing such a complete job. Um, I thought you might mention the fact that this car doesn't appear to have a conventional rear wing. <laughs> what now? The car has no visible rear wing. Quite extraordinary for a car racing at Le Mans. No, 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 no. Of course, the car has a rear wing. Uh, it must have a rear wing if it's going to be stable at the incredibly high speeds found on the Mulsanne Street. Well, I've looked at the pictures and I can't see one. Let me see that. Oh, my God. Olivier! Tu vas aimer complètement brand new! Venez ici tout de suite! Sacre fucking bleu! The new Lotus is emerging as an internal combustion engine car, and I'm guessing there might well be a hybrid or perhaps even an electric version some point in the next five or ten years. There has to be, surely. Alex is shaking his head. Really, they're not going to make an electric version of it at all. Is that what they're saying? No plans have been confirmed. When I interviewed Phil Popham about this at the Avaya launch, he said, oh, yeah, we're going to do an electric version and it'll be great. So the kind of headline the next day was... The final internal combustion engine Lotus sports car is going to be electric. But since then, having spoken to Lotus, oh, so when's the electric one coming? It's not. Interesting. The thing is, this is Lotus's last internal combustion engine car. Yeah. You know, it's based on what's essentially older architecture. Yeah. Well, it's developed for Elise originally and then was evolved into Evora. It never had electrification in mind. An electric yeah. powertrain or electrified powertrain is massive. So there will be a Lotus electric sports car at some point in the future, but maybe not as soon as you think. And of course, there has been a Lotus electric sports car before the Avaya, of course. The first Tesla Roadster was basically in a lease with 3,000 mobile phone batteries in it. Right, so right. it can be done. I went to Hethel years ago, my first experience of Lotus. I met with one of their PRs at, at a motor show and said, oh, I love Lotus, can I come to the factory? And they said, yeah, come down. And there was a big row of Tesla Roadsters. And I was like, hang on, these are all in sort of pretty finished nick, aren't they? They went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So aren't these built in Detroit? And they went, yeah, built in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, they were built in Norfolk, which is in Detroit, apparently. Leading to talking about batteries, really, that's what I was alluding to here, that there's been some big movement in the world of battery manufacturing here in the UK with the recent announcement that the Northeast is going to get what has become known in modern parlance as a gigafactory. Now, I want to talk about the nomenclature before we get to the nuts and bolts of this. A gigafactory, they apply to battery factories now, don't they? But I'm not sure that was the original intention. It's just a factory. It's a factory that makes things. Why call it giga? It's like putting I in front of a new electric device. It means literally nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, supermarkets or hypermarché. It's just the next scale up. And what they're talking about is building a really big factory. Mm. And these days, 
car factories have to be capable of servicing electric vehicles as we make the shift over to EVs. So Gigafactory has been hijacked. Oh, no, it means making a factory to build batteries now. No, it doesn't. But hooray, we're getting a battery factory. Yeah, yeah, although there's no reason why it should, but yeah, that's what it means in yeah, yeah, yeah. temporary parlance. So, yeah, there we go. It's a, yeah. I'm not quite sure how a gigafactory came to be associated with just enormous battery factories. But that aside, it's great news that Sunderland, that the Northeast is getting that big investment and that big factory, and particularly welcome news given that Nissan were quite downbeat about the prospects for post-Brexit investment in Britain. So that's just thoroughly good news. Thumbs up. Let's go build some batteries. We need a gigafactory. We need the mass capability of building modern cars in the UK because whilst we're well serviced on internal combustion engine cars, if you do a comparison between the number of cars manufactured, a sort of ratio between our ability to build battery EVs and conventional cars, Britain is way, way, way down compared to the EU. We've got some investment, and this is fantastic. Don't get me wrong, it's absolutely fantastic. But it's probably less than a quarter of the level of investment that we actually need in the UK to gear up for the new market of cars. This isn't the only battery factory coming. I believe British Vault are going to put one in Coventry. I may be wrong. I know that the plan originally was to put it in St. Athen where Aston Martin build the DBX now, but that plan was thwarted at the last minute. I think it's going to be in Coventry. So we are getting this investment. And I think, isn't there a plan for BMW to rebuild the Hams Hall plant from the inside out to service battery electric cars? Do either of you two know about this? No, no, sorry. To the internet. Have a look, see what's going there. But we've got a great motor industry in Britain. We've got brands which sell internationally and sell well, but we don't have enough electric capability here right now, do we? We have a great industry, but it's an industry with a great history, but a very uncertain future. The environment in which the industry is going to have to compete and thrive in the future is so different to the environment that it grew up in and thrived in in the late 20th century. So the future is very much unwritten. We have a curious situation culturally, I think, here in Britain. Heritage is really, really, really important to us, isn't it? Oh, no, no, we've done it this way for years. But having said that, we're also really good at innovation. But the one thing that we often fail to do here is to take that innovation and mass produce it, pick it up and run with it. You know, there have been examples, what am I thinking of? Perhaps Concorde is a bad example, but, you know, we were able to innovate in partnership with the French to make something truly futuristic, but not able to make something that we could roll out on a mass scale and make us enormously wealthy. Yeah, I mean, you could look at things like graphene, for example. You know, yep. the UK pioneered the development of graphene, but it won't be British companies that are benefiting from the rollout of graphene-based technology. Yeah. So just so I understand, graphene is carbon nanotubes, is that right? Or is that a different thing? It's different. It's related though. Graphene is single atom thick sheets of carbon lattice. So it's what you would get if you took a carbon nanotube, cut it down the middle lengthways and unfolded it. That would give you a very small piece of graphene. If you stitch a lot of those together, you get a big sheet of graphene. So if you imagine that classic hexagonal 
linking pattern of carbon atoms. Yep. It's that in a single sheet. It's like chicken wire with a carbon atom at the centre of every hexagon. That's so the, who is uh, benefiting from graphene? Is it Korea and Japan and America? Uh, a lot of Chinese companies, certainly. Of a lot of other companies in the Far East are benefiting, I believe. In Manchester University, one of the sort of intellectual powerhouses of the graphene world. But I think in terms of development and in exploitation, that's happening much more in the Far East than in the UK and Europe. I've just realised something. I made a note about British Vault earlier on and completely ignored it. British Vault's plant is also going to be in the northeast. Their headquarters is in Northumberland and they're going to build their plant there. I was reading about the possibility of there being something in Coventry as well, but I don't know how far advanced that is. So the northeast, never mind the far east, the northeast is becoming the hotspot for electric vehicles at the moment. That's great. If we could curate a regional expertise in battery development and battery manufacturing that'd be wonderful so it's not taking coals to newcastle anymore it's taking electrons to newcastle isn't it alex <laughs> you've been looking very serious there at your screen have you been reading up on something i've been searching for things on ham's hall and i can see nothing about electricness i'm afraid hmm. the most recent story i can find from a source what i trust is an autocar story so more recently, the plant has been set up to build the new generation of three and four cylinder turbocharged engines for minis and BMWs and has supplied engines for both firms, PHEVs, now builds a 302 horsepower two litre motor for the John Cooper Works yep. GP and BMW M135i. Its next project is apparently taking on the BMW V8 and V12 engines. So not really electric. <laughs> not really in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Blimey. Where did I get that from? Something that was mooted, I think, I don't know, I read in Car Magazine maybe a good few years ago now, and it's clearly something that BMW have completely changed their mind on. I blame Brexit. I bet that was something that was genuinely... <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. I and mean, I went to a BMW showcase thing in LA a few years ago around the motor show, and they were talking us all about how they're battery tech they're looking into not only developing it further but how they're going to recycle it and they have giant facilities yep. designed to recycle repurpose and figure out what to do with all these batteries and how to make them more efficient yep. so maybe one will appear in the uk maybe but mm. it might just be employing scientists rather than building and exporting batteries because that just yeah. got a lot more expensive so interesting what you were saying about the repurposing of batteries there because one of the things that's going to happen at this new nissan battery plant mm -hmm. is that they're going to run the entire gigafactory on renewables and that they will have their own repurposed ex nissan leaf battery array to operate as their buffer their electrical buffer to run the factory so they're actually self-repurposing because as we know a battery in an electric car if it falls below 80% of its original performance, most car owners would find that disappointing and no longer useful. But for a battery that's easily rechargeable and in a static environment for an industrial application, that's not a problem. So whipping out old batteries from leaves, leafs, actually, that is correct, isn't it? The plural of the car is leafs, not leaves. Yeah, no, probably. Because it's a name. Probably. The leaf is a name. We're not talking about a leaf from a tree, but something called a leaf. So they are leafs. So, for instance, if you had more than one leaf Ericsson, they would be leafs, wouldn't they? Leafs Ericsson. 
It, it's always wonderful to come across a new bit of language, some new kind of construction in yeah. English language that we can get fussy and pedantic about because yeah. I could never get enough of that. Well, yeah, exactly. Thanks. They've come to the Thank right place much. here, haven't they? Absolutely. So, yeah, this new plant is going to be a bit of a leap. But where, he said, banging his eternal drum, is Britain's commitment to the emerging hydrogen economy? He asked. Do we need one? I mean... <laughs> I mean, I, well, that's a tough question. There's River Simple in that they're whales. Yeah, they're only tiny, though, and they're so prototypey. But what we need is a Toyota or a Hyundai who are building a mass market hydrogen fuel cell car and of course the infrastructure to build hydrogen fuel cells themselves and the supporting infrastructure to supply hydrogen we need to be doing that as much as bevs at the moment the infrastructure is the bigger issue here because yeah. whereas in building up your electric vehicle infrastructure you're doing stuff that at least is closer to a lot of the things you might be doing related to your electric grid infrastructure. What you do in relation to hydrogen economy infrastructure is entirely different. It's a whole new thing and of questionable value, I think. I'm not really sort of firmly on one side of this or the other, but whilst I see some strong arguments for hydrogen, there are also significant issues around basically the efficiency with which you can use hydrogen as a store of energy. Yep. Because that's what it is. It's a store of energy rather than a source of energy. And it's very difficult to do the hydrogen stuff efficiently. If it's cheap enough, lower efficiency doesn't necessarily matter all that much. But if you're competing with other technologies in the non-hydrocarbon burning new world mm. it's a bit less easy to do that and i think probably do you want to split your effort between developing your electric vehicle infrastructure and battery infrastructure and the hydrogen do you do both or do you concentrate on one well i think you don't put all your electrical eggs in your clockwork chicken basket is that right i think you need to have an R&D Blue Skies Exploratory concept department as well, exploring the alternatives, just in case it turns out that the BEV solution is not the one that everyone goes for. Well, but hang on a second. I don't have to challenge that. I don't see what kind of Blue Skies research or thinking is. What new knowledge can possibly come into this well, when we know as much as we know about battery technology and hydrogen okay maybe blue skies is the wrong word what i meant was less mainstream now battery electric vehicles are mainstream at the moment having said that there are a good number of hydrogen fuel cell buses running in london at the moment and they're all built by the chinese it's a partnership with dennis you know dennis is originally a scottish company now owned by a canadian group but all the hydrogen and fuel cell stuff comes from byd a chinese firm they are world leaders in this and the pressure on public transport is growing and growing and growing throughout the world you know as car owners we are becoming coming dinosaurs we're going to be car renters we're going to be app users we're going to be traveling much more on public transport in the very near future as well so whilst we're seeing investment for battery electric cars we need to be thinking about those other alternatives as well there are lots of hydrogen rail projects very successfully running across europe at the moment and I think there's a test project somewhere in Britain as well, in Warwickshire or somewhere running at the moment. We do need to be 
making sure that we're covering all fronts is what I'm saying, not just the obvious one. We absolutely have to do the obvious one. Don't get me wrong there, but we should be doing other stuff too. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be mildly foolish to assume that the larger British automotive firms aren't looking at it. But bear in mind, if we're talking about British cars as British cars, that your Rolls Royces and your Bentleys, they're also teamed with some quite large organisations. So that technology might not be being developed in the UK. Mm-hmm but it can be applied very readily to UK cars. Hmm. But again, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Well, we try and find out, don't we? (laughs) Watch this space. Watch this space. Hopefully there's lots going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully there is lots, because I reckon hydrogen, I think just as hybrid was a good stopgap to electric, Mm -hmm. I think full BEVs are the stopgap before hydrogen. I agree. That's what I reckon. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Very briefly, make the case for why hydrogen is the endpoint rather than BEV. Weight and infrastructure. Plus, it's the buyer behaviour of, okay, so if we gave you a car that you could plug into a thing for five minutes and then all your problems would be solved and you pay by the litre, a lot of people would go for that. Yeah, yeah. Weight of cars is a huge thing. The resource yep. that goes into creating batteries, while we are getting better at it, still not the greatest in the world. And I think that as time goes on, a hydrogen future is a smarter way for us to go, if anything, just for normality, to keep things the same. Unless in a couple of years time, someone goes, "Okay, so I've developed a battery cell that will do the same as the battery in a Rimac's Nevera. You can charge it in 30 seconds flat and it'll do 150, 200 miles like that. And it weighs nothing. We are always five years away from a solid-state instant charging battery, aren't we? Yes, and we, we have been for the last 15 and years. And we're always 10 years away <laughs> from fully autonomous vehicles. That's right. <laughs> okay, let's start wrapping this up now. It's only a short show today for reasons... Well, I want to be able to spend tomorrow celebrating my birthday, not editing a programme. So it's a short one. But in the few minutes left of this programme, Alex, I know this isn't your area of specialty whatsoever, but in less than a thousand words, what is your reaction to Lewis Hamilton signing a two-year deal to stay driving for Mercedes in Formula One? Good for him. He's very good at his job and the team clearly values him. So yeah, good for him. Yeah. You don't hate him for it, because I know you're not a big Lewis fan. No, well, no. My opinion on Lewis Hamilton has been that he's presented himself as a little bit of an arse in various places in the past. But what he's doing now and using his platform as a force for good is a fantastic thing. Yeah. He is arguably the best driver in the world. Whether his car's the best or not, I don't care. He's won... Isn't he level pegging for the most world championships? With Schumacher now at the moment, yeah. You know what? Good on him for getting another two years and he's got another two cracks at it and it's going to be another God knows how many years before someone challenges him for that. So, no, good for him. Congratulations, Mr. Hamilton. Sir Hamilton, sorry, Sir Hamilton. Sir, oh, of course. Yes, Sir. Sir Sir Lewis, yeah, Sir Lou. Um, Zoggy, a bit of a surprise that he signed so quickly out the blue, do you think? Um, Not entirely. I mean, he obviously really fits in well at that team. They have a very good relationship i could see him seeing out his career at mercedes yeah maybe a bit of a surprise that it came along that quickly but i think it was always a case of them just figuring out on each side the kind of fiddling small detail of what is probably quite a lucrative and enormous contract but you know i'm sure they both wanted it to happen it was just a case of crossing those t's and dotting the i's so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing him continuing for the next couple of years with a team that's been so good for him I reckon the reason why it's happened so quickly is it's become quite clear in the number of races that we've had this season 
that Max and Red Bull stand a very, very, very good chance of winning the championship, a far greater chance than perhaps we even imagined they might this year. And that Lewis is thinking, look, I really want to get another championship and I'm probably not going to do it this year. I better sign for next year now. You know, his eighth championship could take two years and he's counting on the fact that the allegedly level playing field that will emerge next year with the new rules will advantage a team with deep resources like Mercedes and they will be able to come out of the paddock, out of the garage, out of the pit lane in January of next year with a car that works under the new regulations as good, if not better than any, giving Lewis a good chance of being able to break that record and get an eighth world championship. Maybe, but I'm not sure that Hamilton is as motivated as, for example, Vettel by the numbers, by the records. I really think that if he was getting a bit fed up of racing, if he's getting a, a bit tired of it, he'd just walk away rather than thinking, well, I really want to beat Schumacher's record, therefore I'm going to stick at it so I can tick that one off the list. I think it's much more of just one of those obsessions and things that he has to do for himself rather than for the numbers. But we're certainly going to get a tremendous scrap, I think, for the whole of the rest of the season with Verstappen, who has to be the favourite now I think. His last few races he's looking so strong that Red Bull Verstappen package is so strong right now I think it's for him to lose it now really. Yeah you're right it is for him to lose it yeah but moreover you're talking about this great scrap I mean very briefly in the moments we've got left the Austrian Grand Prix that we just presumably enjoyed I certainly did I'm sure you did Zog right now was a cracker today mainly because of Perez getting his elbows out and Norris overachieving at an incredible level. And I think adding Norris into the mix now is something that is only enriching the sport that we love so much. Didn't he do well? Oh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, the race at the front was pretty boring. You know, Verstappen ran away with it from the start. End of story. But the Perez-Leclerc battle that we had and yeah Perez Norris at the start I think Perez was quite hard done by by the stewards to be honest I don't think he did anything wrong agreed um sorry I, I well I, I don't, I don't think Norris. Norris did anything wrong yeah. in that early incident I don't think he pushed um uh it was it was Perez wasn't it uh, yeah but Norris I, pushed I, I, Perez I, out and was given a five second penalty oh, it, yeah, and then Perez yeah. I don't think he did anything wrong. pushed uh was it a Ferrari Leclerc. out yeah yeah it was Leclerc there was the Leclerc Perez fight which lasted Fab. for a good portion of the race but there's some great racing there Leclerc was judging things beautifully yeah and Perez <laughs> I thought was a little harshly treated by the stewards given that it was the kind of racing that, that we want to see really he didn't look to me like he was doing anything dirty but the absolute best thing about the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend was the sea of orange in the stands. I think everybody in the Netherlands who was allowed out of the country was in Austria. And I don't think there were any Austrians, natives, in that race at all. They were all Dutch. It was hilarious. The singing, the smoke flares. It was like a football match. The sense of sort of lunacy there. Because, you know, all three of us know at Le Mans, when you pass the Dutch campsites, this is Party City, and some of that is at Formula One now, and I'm very happy to see that in Formula One. Love the Dutch. Heel egg bedankt, mijn lieve Nederlands vrienden. Thank you, the Netherlands, I say. And thank you, Alex Goy. Thank you very much. And thank you, Zog. 
Always a pleasure. I will see you both for my birthday celebration drinks tomorrow. And I'm now going to try and edit and prepare as much of this programme I can before I get drunk. So you guys, if this is the last ever Gareth Jones on Speak because I drink myself into oblivion, it's been a pleasure. If it isn't, I'll see you for the next one. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!